Hi, welcome to another episode of Managing Well. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Jesse Furchette with you today. We talk about the impact of how we were raised in our family systems and in society and how that comes out in our management styles. Nobody sets out to be a bad people manager. We all want to be effective. We all want to have a great team. And yet some of us fall short um, and sometimes even cause significant harm. And so whether that is yelling, not setting clear expectations, micromanaging, sometimes we have toxic traits as managers. And in this episode, we talk about what we can do differently when we realize it and also having compassion for ourselves and understanding where those traits may have come from. So really excited for you to join us and listen to this episode. Jesse Frechette is the founder and director of Center Mindful, a now virtual mindfulness studio. He's a mindfulness educator, coach, facilitator, mindfulness-based psychotherapist, and anti-racism allyship coach. Jesse has a master's in social work from the University of Pennsylvania and has been teaching and coaching people in the practice of mindfulness to increase compassion and well-being for more than a decade. He has been working as a clinical social worker in community settings, as well as in private practice for over 25 years. Jesse is in the current cohort of Transformative Changes Embodied Social Justice Certificate Program. Jesse, welcome to Managing Well. So excited to have you here. Uh, thank you, Tanya. It's great to be here. And, you know, <clears throat> even when we were talking about the topic of toxic managers, we realized that even using that, that term, risks bringing up some shame for people yes. and so we wanted to kind of start with just kind of letting people know that really we're coming at this from the place of wanting to support people to do that the best that they can where they are with what they have and with what they already know and then to build upon that because really as you're saying we all set out to do our best so we're we're kind of hosting this in the interest of what's going to help us to do mm. our best so mm -hmm. that's our intention behind this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, thank you for saying that. Um, because that is the purpose, how we can learn from what we know, how we can learn what we don't know and, and do better. Absolutely. And, and I just, on that, on along those lines, I would just want to put out there that mindfulness is, is a practice um, that has helped me so much in kind of getting to know what is it that I'm working on? what 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 strengths am I bringing and what are the areas that I want to strengthen and you know it reminds me of that quote that we don't just inherit generational traumas from our families of origin we inherit generational strengths mm. and so I want to kind of step that forward with what we're doing here today I, I like I love that perspective it make I'm a clinical social worker by training too so of course that you know resonates for me um and I think before we kind of go more into the conversation, I would love to just um, like hear hear more about you. And you know, right before we got on, we were we were talking like, how long have we known each other? Has it been ten years, fifteen years? No, it's been like what about twenty years? We've known each other, um, and in just kind of different ways. Uh, I think we've met professionally, we've connected personally. Um, there was a time I, I just want to. There was a time that just was special to me, where you invited me to. Um, you were supervising a lot of uh, black women, and so you wanted me to kind of come and talk with them um, in a real kind of open, 
format <laughs> about some of, you know, the joys and strengths and, and it was a pleasure and a joy to do that. Um, and then years later you came and to my team led a mindfulness session of just bringing us calm and peace, um, in, in challenging times, um, and so just, it, it, it's, it, I just wanted to, I think, share the, the reciprocity we've had um, and also want you to be able to tell more about, about kind of who Jesse is in this world um, that has brought you to mindfulness and brought you to the conversation we're having today about how we're going to apply that um, as we talk about um, management styles that, that are harmful, where it comes from, and then what we can do to shift it so it doesn't cause harm. Yeah, thanks so much for that that beautiful reminder of some of the history of, of our connection, Tanya, and how there has been that opportunity for some reciprocity back and forth. And it's interesting because that's actually one of the strengths of a good manager is recognizing the contributions and the ways that relationships can strengthen the workplace. Mm. When people bring their different strengths to the workplace. And, you know, when we look at toxic managers, I just want to touch on one point that reminded me of that. The idea of um, ignoring people's mutual desire to grow and develop is one of the traits of toxic managers. And I think what you and I just shared is we have found ways of collaborating over the years, which honor our desires to grow and develop and share the resources that we have with each other. And think about if, if in the workplace, if supervisors looked at Who's there? Who are they supervising? Who are the employees? And what are the ways in which the strengths of those employees could help, you know, contribute to the culture of the work setting rather than it just being a top-down always approach? And you know, as you were as you were saying that, I also was thinking from a management perspective, you know, if you have the idea that you're the manager and you're in charge and you have to take care of everything. Um, and sometimes that comes from a like um, very intentionally controlling place sure. um, and kind of power over people. And then sometimes it comes from a place of, um, it still might be controlling, but it, but it comes from a place of seeing themselves as like, my role is to take care of everybody, which means I have to do it all. Right. Um, limits the vision and ability to see where we can't do it all, like right? I can't be everything to everybody on my team. Like there are there are gaps I have, there are skill sets I don't have. That's just human. Um, but if I'm trying to always do it all, I'm going to miss out on bringing in experts like yourself, right? I'm going to miss out on bringing in other resources and other people that my team needs because I have the idea that I'm the only one who can do it. I love that, Tanya, because it's an example of how we're saying that, you know, um, when we're being reflective of ourselves as supervisors and managers, um, rather than coming from a place of shame, let's come from a place of, of what is, what, what can I become more aware of here? What is it that, what, you know, what can I hold in awareness, pause and hold in awareness long enough to see kind of like, where is it coming from? Let me reflect on this a bit. And and I actually, I know it's a bit of a pivot, but I want to pivot because you had asked me to kind of touch in a little bit about who I am and, and mm -hmm. even like where, how mindfulness came into play. And I think that 
what you're raising here will allow me to kind of bring that in a little bit. Um, because I was working in three schools in inner city Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And these were three schools that um, had a lot of socioeconomic challenges. They were schools in neighborhoods with a lot of socioeconomic challenges. And here I was covering three schools and on call for any one of those schools in any given day, if there was something that rose to the level of crisis. And over time, I started to feel like this is an overwhelming job. Mm-hmm. And I stay effective when it's even hard for me to take care of myself in this job. Mm-hmm. That's when I began training in mindfulness because I knew that I needed something for me first, right? It, to take care of myself because you can't pour from an empty vessel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I really leaned into mindfulness. I got trained in it through mindful schools mm-hmm. and, and then other mindfulness trainings along the way too, to, to really kind of, you know, broaden my ability to use it in different settings and with different populations. But what I realized is that I went, I resorted to mindfulness because I needed something for me first. Mm-hmm. And once I had it and I was like, wow, this is helping me. It's helping me to manage stress. Um, a little bit more about what mindfulness is. It's really about um, allowing yourself to pause and just be with what you're experiencing in the present moment. And, and what I want to add to that is it's not only being with the experience of it, but it's the mental tone and way of being with it that's key. And what mm-hmm. mindfulness invites is self, something called mindful self-compassion, where you're really allowing yourself to attune to and then attend to it with kind of from the heart. I, I want to just bring in the, the idea of um, how we receive it, our experiences in our own heart is key to mindfulness. And so, yeah, go ahead. You're, you're... Yeah, see, but say more about what you mean, um, receive mindfulness and experiences, excuse me, in, in your own heart. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah. So what I want to say is a lot of our time we spend thinking about stuff and, and analyzing mm-hmm. it in the head. And that, that will only take us so far because if you're, if you're only living from the head, sometimes there's also unhelpful scripts playing and ruminating in the head. Mm-hmm. What, what I think that it's asking us to do is to move into the body a little bit and check in in the body. Mm-hmm. It's hard for, for so many of us because of trauma, because of discomfort, because of um, all of the experiences that we've had in the past, which can make it not feel so safe to be in the body. And so I see this as, you know, there's a saying that Reverend, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who's the one who kind of started the embodied social justice program that I'm in, she says, go at the speed of trust. And I love that because that includes our own working with ourselves. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so really, it's really just about touching into the body, noticing what we're feeling, where we're feeling it, and trying to meet it with curiosity and kindness, even if it's in just small doses. You know, I think it's might be Resma Menachem that says, we don't have to gorge on it. We can nibble on it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea, Um, which I think especially when we're hearing new concepts or considering new ways of engaging with concepts and ideas and practices, it can feel overwhelming to think I have to do this all the time. And to be, to be able to nibble on it and just do a little bit, um, you know, as you were talking, you know, in, 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 in a lot of the work I do when I'm working with um, people who work in corporate corporations, right? Like large, large organizations, um, 
who are very, to your point, analytical, they're in their mind, they're thinking a lot. And a lot of what we do is talking about how to blend like it's the emotional intelligence component component of it, like paying attention to your own reactions and managing them before you just kind of act on them. And so I just, was that kind of came to mind as you're talking about paying attention to the heart and kind of having self-compassion for what is coming up for you. And I'm also just kind of circling back to, you got into mindfulness to be better at your job. <laughs> I did, yeah. You know, I was in, when I was in high school, this is just a random memory. I was friends with, um, I was friends with a boy who played basketball and he was so dedicated to basketball, so dedicated and like determined to get better and determined to make varsity that he took ballet classes because he read that that would give him more flexibility, more endurance. And so did something completely outside of his comfort zone because the focus was basketball. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you've built this practice and like it's big mindfulness is, you know, very much part of your life. But I just kind of coming back to like you did it because you wanted to be better at your job. Um, it just struck me. Yeah, you know, it's true because when I was working in schools, I also became a play therapist because I was working with school age children. Not that my goal was to set out to work with children, but I was in a school setting and I wanted to be good at my job. So, you know, and now with mindfulness, it's it's really moved into because I want to be good at practicing being a human being. You know? I do. Yeah. I do. I'm just sitting with that statement. In a, in a society that moves a mile a minute um, and we're focused on productivity and innovating and doing and being great and doing great work um, that I think often we forget the human component. So I really, your point of practicing being, uh, how did you say it? Say it again. Um, practicing being a good human being, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah toward myself and others right yes yeah. so. you know you know as we were thinking about this topic for this this episode um and just how our past experiences impact how we manage in ways that can be harmful um one of the things that excites me about working with organizations and people in organizations is the ability to repair harm that's been caused. And so, and, you know, we'll talk, I'm gonna let you talk more about Bowen, <laughs> the theory of Bowen and, and all of that, but the idea, you know, that of, of systems and family systems and work systems. And so we come together and spend so much time together at work. Um, and it can be great joy and it can be great pain. And it's an environment when it has the right support and structure can hold the pain and the joy and can help people get through the pain to get back to joy. Um, just like you're practicing being a good human being, I feel like workplaces have the opportunity to be these microcosms of culture and environment of practicing doing it differently, perhaps than we were raised to do. Yeah. There's so much in what you just said. Um, you know, I like what, um, what Bowen starts to bring in 
the family systems um, theories and some of the basic principles. And I'm wondering, maybe it would be helpful for us to just kind of touch that into it now. Yeah, that, that's perfect. Do you want to say a little bit about, about Bowen and a little bit about the work he, you know, his theory? And yes, okay. I'm excited to hear this from you. Yeah, so let me just say a little bit about it. Um, and I'm pulling from Chris Drew, um, Family Systems Theory Definition and Examples. And this is uh, May 3rd, 20, 2023. Um, so, the, the and I'm going to share a couple things. This is a description. Okay. So family system theory understands human behavior through a complex web of emotional processes in one's family, work, and social systems. So I think that's key, mm -hmm. right? Family systems theory understands human behavior through a complex web of emotional processes in one's family, work, and social systems. So it's not, it's not just about the individuals. Right. It describes how the emotional interdependence among family, society, members impacts individuals characters and life choices i mean that's huge because if that's the lens that we're going to hold this it means we're not going to just be evaluating the individual and just looking at behaviors of the individual and we're also going to have to keep ourselves in check as managers when you know that this is interrelational this is systemic when something's not working it's not going to be just about focusing on the individual's behavior and choices it's going to be, we need to look at the big picture here and we need to figure this out together in a collaborative way. And so that's true. This, this is a statement and question, I think. Yeah. Is that true for a manager of direct reports and considering their direct reports as part of a larger context and also realizing them that they as managers are part of a larger context too? That's it. Right. Yeah, we have to be willing to look at the big picture and the layers. It, it no longer is working. It hasn't worked for us to just focus on, on, you know, because a lot of times what happens is the individual is up against all of the systems and institutional issues that are impacting them. And then on top of it, they're being scrutinized and blamed for, for things without any consideration of what's really happening here. It's mm. really happening here. Mm-hmm. And 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 how many of us have seen that or experienced it, you know, whether it was ourselves or with a colleague, um, or whether we just saw something happening. Mm -hmm. And I, so I feel like family systems theory is giving us a theory that yes, looks at families, but it also looks at communities, and then it also applies to institutional settings. So can I give a quick example that that comes to mind as we're That'd be can. great. I, I yeah. can. I'm going to give a quick example of what comes to mind as we're talking. Um, so kind of an outdated perception of women not being interested in being promoted in the workplace or not being committed to work. Um, and I say outdated because I think there's there's more awareness of the whole systems that are that are at play, right? But for for a long time, like that was a narrative, like. You know, women really aren't interested in getting promoted. Work isn't as important to them as their families. Like it's, it's always a lower priority. Um, and I think what we've seen in more recent years is a greater understanding of the reason for that perception is because women in the U.S. are primarily the caregivers of children, of aging parents, right? And so if we're in looking at a system 
that designates one population by gender to be the caregivers, it doesn't give a lot of time <laughs> for for other other things, even if that is very much desired and even financially necessary. So then if women are in roles and they're getting stuck and not getting promoted because they have to leave work to do another job of caregiving um, that's not recognized, then they get stuck. And then the, and then the default narrative is, oh, okay, well, well, men care more about work. Men are more committed. Let's give the promotion to the man because they're more available. And if that man is actually partnered with a woman, not even thinking of like, oh, how is that impacting that? Like it's a bigger ripple effect that I think we're starting to talk about and see. Um, but to your point, it's not the one individual. How do we understand what is the, the context that that individual is in? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's how it's it's the same concept of rate of looking at racism, where you know a lot of historically um, white folks were looking at the individual stars of incidences, whereas communities of color, people of color, we're looking at the constellations that they were very well aware of. And so when another incident happened, you know, it was part of that greater constellation for communities of color, whereas for white folks, it's another incident. And and they're oftentimes trying to um, give perfectly logical explanations, mm -hmm. than, you know, really kind of listening to what people have been saying for, for years. Mm -hmm. And so we know that in you know, we know that what we're learning more and more, right, broader and broader, is the need to really look at these things, look at systems, look at institutions, look at history, look at context. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful just to look at the individual, right? Right. Yeah. And so when we think about, you know, I'm thinking about toxic management style, mm -hmm. and I don't even know if that's a fully accurate description um I think and I think I think yeah I don't know if it's fully accurate I think that it describes some really harmful management styles but there's others that <laughs> may not qualify to the level of being toxic um but are certainly harmful and don't kind of support individuals or organizations. Um, but I just to kind of give us some, so that we're kind of grounded in what we mean by that. When I think about those kind of um, bad management styles, harmful management styles, you know, we often hear of micromanaging. Um, we hear about unfair treatment, like treating one person or multiple people better than others. Um, we hear of like really like a really abusive things like um yelling at people throwing things at people um that might happen less than in re in recent years as we're more remote but those things have happened and do happen <laughs> um yeah those are so i just wanted to kind of give some some flavor to what we're talking about when we're talking about the management behaviors that we, that we, I want to say, this is what I want to say. I want to say that we have experienced, that we have witnessed. And I also say, want to say what we have done. I think it gets really dangerous for us as people managers to only look at how others cause harm and not consider how we cause harm. 
I think we can, and it doesn't mean we're a toxic manager, but I think there's ways that we can do fantastic work and there's ways we can cause harm. Like both, both can be true. Well, you've given me some things to, to kind of help weave some more theory in then. Um, well, I, and I want to pick up on what you were, what you were sharing, Tanya, and add more of the quote unquote toxic behaviors that are some of the ones that the, the literature looks at. And I'm just going to throw them out there. Um, micromanaging, of course, is one. Um, squashing the ideas of others, um, which is like a top-down approach, rather than in, encouraging ideas from all levels, bottom up. Um, failure to actively listen. Mm. Yeah. Ignoring people's natural desire to grow and develop. You know, not just people are not just worker bees. Um, being missing in action, mm. as you know, especially when things are really needed. Um, perceptual biases, and this is really important. And we've we've touched on this already. Um, but there's also something called the fundamental attribution error, which I I highlighted it. I just want to share what it is. Mm -hmm. um, the fundamental attribution error, which is also known as correspondence bias or over attribution effect is the tendency for people to overemphasize dispositional or personality-based explanations for behaviors observed in others while underemphasizing situational explanations. It's mm -hmm. a fancy way of kind of saying what we've been saying, which is where people are kind of, there's a bias at play here. And if you're a manager or supervisor and you're not even aware of the bias and you're you're running with it, and, you know, and it's, and it's oftentimes influenced by overemphasizing the behavior of an individual and not even considering situational explanations. Right. So, if, so if somebody on your team makes a mistake and you think, I can't believe Jamie just made that mistake. What were they thinking? They should know better, right? It's all about Jamie That's right. as opposed to, and that might be your first natural response. That's real. Um, but then also considering, okay, what was going on where this mistake happened? Did Jamie have all the information that they needed? Um, was there a gap in communication, right? To kind of consider what else could be at play, not just Jamie as a problem. Absolutely. Which leads us to, I added one of my own because um, I was pulling those toxic behaviors from Marcel Schwantes in Leadership from the Core. And then I added another one, which is unclear expectations and lack of collaborative mm -hmm. goals. Mm -hmm. It plays into what you were just alluding to, which is, you know, you're blaming the individual, but were the expectations clear? And, and from the very get-go, were things established in a collaborative way that could invite mutual ownership and accountability to be kind of arrived at together? Yes. Yes. And that's where I think really, really strong communication comes into play that most of us were not taught to do. You know, I was actually uh, talking with a client the other day and I said, you know, the way that we are raised and the way that kind of culture supports how individuals are raised, um, especially when we think about certain identities, when we think about gender and race, right, there might be some ways that people are, are raised to be in the world that don't give them the skills they need to be successful as people managers. Absolutely. 
and even what is successful, right? Even how, like when you're looking at what's deemed successful in terms of traits and style of mm-hmm, management, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we've talked to you and I were talking a little bit about sibling birth order, right? Yes. Yes. And so when we think about, you know, the literature says that, you know, firstborns or oldest children, or maybe even like only children, you know, tend to have a tendency towards leadership. Mm-hmm. And so, and their, and their leadership style might be different than let's say, um, you know, somebody who's, I'll speak from my own experience that being the youngest of nine, mm-hmm. I found myself in a leadership role when I was a program supervisor. And I had about, I would say about 30, a little over 30 staff I was supervising in, in 42 different schools. And what I realized, you know, from looking at this literature for today's podcast, I realized that one of the risks that I was in as a youngest was that I am more subjected, more kind of like prone to the impact of groupthink. Mm. Because, I mean, especially being the youngest of nine, um, my style is going to be to kind of have the feelers out for, you know, how's the group being impacted? What do people think? Like, how is this going to go over? And so that's different from, let's say, somebody who, you know, maybe is an older, oldest child who maybe is kind of used to other people following them and used to just kind of making choices and decisions coming from a clearly grounded place of this is what I think, this is what I want. And so I'm at risk as in a leadership role, I'm at a little bit at risk of, you know, being viewed not so much as a leader, as more of a group think or as a follower. Style-wise, what I found for myself that helps me with that is I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. I also look at, I also recognize that one of the strengths side of that is that I do try to collaborate with the group, all all levels of staff. I do try to really not just roll out decisions. I let people know what the expectations and goals are from if, if they're coming from the top. But then I try to work with everybody together to to really develop some of those those goals and some of the um, expectations so that we can kind of give feedback to the top and say this is what we're seeing as well and we think that there's some value in this feedback as you're trying to kind of move forward with this and oftentimes I find that direct workers will see things that most impact their work that people, you know, kind of at top levels of management hadn't even considered. Yep. In the end, it's going to lead to more effective um, work and it's mm-hmm. going to more mm-hmm. productivity and it's going to lead to a better morale because mm-hmm. people are being considered. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, being the youngest of nine might mean that my leadership style, you know, can is not maybe, I don't know if it's not as commanding or I don't even know what words to use, but I will say that my power is not so much power over, it's really more power with. Right, right. That's sort of natural for me. It's just natural. No, um, that was a uh, such a great illustration of how your recognition of the impact of your birth order and how you navigated just being the youngest of nine, right? And the, like the the lessons that you learned 
that you've carried into adulthood, right? And I think that is the piece of, you know, when I think of our management styles at work, I think of how influenced we are by our families. I think of how influenced we are by schooling. All of the years before we become a people manager, like, has such a great impact on us. Um, and so I think when we can be um, introspective and have some awareness of like, okay, wait, how did I learn to delegate? How did I, did I learn to delegate? How did I learn to communicate? How did I learn to listen to people? How did I learn to seek consensus? Are these things that I've learned or these things that I've considered? How did I learn to give orders and be and expect them to be followed? Like, how did I learn um, what I'm doing in management? Because most of us learned it from childhood, not from management. Um, and so I think just having that awareness is so key to your point, Jesse, because then we can use the strengths that we learned and then the things that we're doing that are that don't work. Um, we can be, have awareness so that we can, we can change them. Yeah. And as you were sharing that, Tanya, I was realizing that part of was that what I was up against in the workplace is that higher level managers are going to look at my leadership style through one lens and then, you know, colleagues and direct workers and workers and staff at all levels are going to look at my management style in a, in a different way, through mm -hmm. a different lens. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in a middle management position, it's different than if you're C-suite. And, and so really here again, it comes back to not just looking at the individual, but looking at the context, the system, the institution. And I wanna tie that back to another part of family system theory. Um, the assumptions of family th system theory are the family is a complex emotional unit. It's mm -hmm. mm -hmm. so not just about looking at the, you know, prior to, I think it was 1960s, 1970s prior um, psychotherapy really just looked at the individual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now we're looking at the individual as part of a system and it's and it interplays with each other. The family is emotionally interconnected and familial community and social relationships are reciprocal. Mm -hmm. That certainly applies to the work setting that relationships are reciprocal. And so you have to look at what's really going on here. You know, one of my my friends and colleagues, I think you know them too, um, Elizabeth Elizabeth Byrne um, yes. talks about managers make the weather. So oh, to your point of like the the um, the interconnectedness of emotions, like that that leaders and managers, when you are having a grumpy day and your grumpiness is on display that affects everybody around you. Now, all of a sudden, it's a cloudy day for everybody because <laughs> they don't know what to expect or what is going to come their way or are they going to get barked at or, you know, is it, or you come with sunshine. It's sunshine for everybody. They might have their own personal stuff still going on, but they'll know that the workplace and interacting with you is going to be a much easier day. Um, so to your point about the emotions being interconnected. Yeah, and, and Tanya, in mindfulness, we talk about that as co-regulation. Okay, say more. Yeah, so uh, so part of mindfulness is working with your own system. And that includes our stress response system where we can go into fight, flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. Now there's also a, um, a fourth one that's known as either fawn mm -hmm. or um, 
or kind of like accommodate it's for mm -hmm, lack of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or appease mm -hmm. so flight 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 fight freeze or appease is, mm -hmm. is the way to say it and so you know when i think about um co-regulation in the workplace the first part of mindfulness is working with your own system noticing when when you're triggered by something noticing the unhelpful stories Mm. Pausing, noticing how it's showing up in the body. And a lot of times you'll feel a tension or a constrictedness. You'll, you'll feel that in your system. And so when you don't have that awareness and you're in a, and you're in a, your work setting, you know, the weather is being impacted by everybody's ability to regulate or their level of dysregulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to, to regulate, you mean, what do you mean? Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm regulating, really what I'm doing is I'm pausing and noticing what I'm experiencing as I'm experiencing it. Mm -hmm. I'm meeting it with self-compassion because it might be something really hard. It might mm -hmm. be something where maybe I experienced a microaggression, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. really hard. And so I want to meet myself with care and compassion first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I, I don't want to go to a place of blame or a place of um, shame or looking, feeling like I'm not enough because I'm being, I'm experiencing this. It's not, it's not a, an opportunity to then berate oneself for falling short. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. It's not about that. It's really about just attuning to and attending to with care, whatever your experience is. And, and so that's the invitation. That's the first step to meet yourself with kindness and mm -hmm. compassion. Mm -hmm. And then you might, from there, you might get support from a colleague, right? Or friend. You might make some choices when you feel, you know, calmer, when you feel more regulated, you might make some choices because a lot of times when we make a choice, when we're in that state of fight, flight, or freeze, we don't have the best ability to access the part of our brain that helps us make logical right. and, and rational decisions. Granted, the emotions of, of what you're going through are valid. So it's not like we're saying you need to invalidate that or, de or, or, you know, it's not like it's not, um, you know, it's not important to feel what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. It's just that you want to stay in choice and voice. Same and, and, yeah. So a lot of times, so healing and, and, and true, I guess, liberation is when we feel like we have choice and voice in situations. And in order to do that, sometimes we need to pause and take a moment. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. otherwise we might be just reacting. Mm -hmm. We want to feel like I have choice and voice in my responding. And, and so it's not about feeling like you're wrong for having those emotions for whatever happened. Not at all. In fact, those emotions are really letting you know something wasn't in alignment for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. You're good. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that the mindfulness just invites us to pause and check in so we don't check out. I'm thinking about people who might be listening um, and might start to realize, ooh, maybe I am managing people in the way I learned growing up. Yeah. And maybe I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, I often um, think of, it, it's delicate, um, but, but people management and, and parenting really have a lot of synergy in that you're responsible for these people. 
<laughs> and for my belief, you care, you care about them. You have care for them. You want to show care to them. Um, there's also the like training and learning and accountability that is, I think, shared principles for parenting and also people management. Yeah. Um, and the power difference, right, is is there is there as well. Um, I hesitate. I mean, well, I don't. The delicate part is like, you know, sometimes people talk about work as family and, you know, you don't fire family. <laughs> so I think that is inherent. Like you, you might not talk to family anymore. Right. But like that's that's still factually, you know, part of family. Um, right. And that's not the case in, in the workplace. Um, but I think we bring in those habits, we bring in those traits. So if we grew up with somebody barking orders at us, yelling at us, threatening us, um, bullying or harassing us, like, did you do it? 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 <laughs> right. Um, and then all of a sudden you, that's, that's just how you, that's how you think leadership is and that's what you do. And so um, I guess I would love to hear your perspective if people are listening to this and having a realization mm -hmm. that ooh perhaps the way I lead is what I learned but yeah. not what I want to continue to do um I'm just curious to hear what you might share with them yeah you know and even just as you were talking about that Tanya you know I was just I was feeling the softening in you and in myself because we realized that there's this risk of, of shame and, you know, unhelpful judgments that can arise for people, both in terms of as a, as a supervisor manager and as a parent. Yes. And, and, and so I love um, the way that you're kind of bringing in the invitation to kind of look at it from the, the standpoint, if, if I continue to do what I've been doing and it hasn't been working, I'm going to get the same result. And a lot of times we're, we're weary, whether it be as a parent or a supervisor, as a manager, there's this level of weariness in our bones. Yes. And I think that, um, I think that it's, it's letting us know that something different is needed. And, yes. and, and that's not a bad thing, right? When our system is letting us know, it's like, okay, it's trying to get our attention. Something different is needed. You know, I feel that for me, mindfulness has been that thing because it starts with attuning to and attending to what I'm experiencing, mm -hmm. which will mm -hmm. allow me to kind of create more of a space to for the the heart to experience what it is that is is trying to show me. What mm -hmm. is it that's here for me to look at? And I feel like, you know, you can do some of this individually through um, there's courses you can take online, there's apps. You can do some of this through seeking out a mindfulness coach. Mm -hmm. You can do some of this work through psychotherapy. You can do some of this through general coaching, not just a mindfulness coach. Um, there's many avenues to do the work, you know, and some of those avenues will lead you to things like journaling or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. other activities, creative ways of working with it. Some of them may lead you to ways of working with it in the body. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, somatically with the energy in the body, whether it be through somatic therapy, whether it be through yoga, you know, Tai Chi, Qi Gong. Mm -hmm. So there's many, many ways that we can begin to do things differently. Mm -hmm. 
And some of that is really going to be up to the comfort level. There we go. We come back to voice and choice again, right? Yes. Yeah. I was thinking that when you were talking. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, so I want to touch a little bit more into what you're saying about when we start to recognize that what we're doing is kind of what we know and mm -hmm. where does that come from? And I want to touch into the concept of loyalty. Mm -hmm. This comes out of contextual family therapy. Um, and the founder was Ivan Bezermany Naj, and he was a Hungarian Jewish therapist. And, you know, one of the concepts that he looks a lot at is, is loyalty. And he talks about it from the terms of family loyalty and that there's basically a couple ways that we can be, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but there's a couple ways that we tend to be loyal to our family of origin experience. One is through emulating what we saw, mm -hmm. what, we saw mm -hmm. what was modeled for us. And the other is by reacting to what we didn't like about what we saw. And yes. either way, it's holding a lot of energy for us. Either way, it's kind of determining our choice. Either I'm emulating or I'm reacting against. And it can cause us to sometimes be either too tight or too loose. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah. And so really the awareness of this is with so much of what we're talking about, awareness is the first step. But very close behind that is compassion. Because if you become aware of things and you're and it's just more things for you to beat yourself up about, it's not productive. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> no. You know, I actually have a I can give a personal example of what you're talking about with the loyalty. Um, and this all for for people who are listening, this is all um unconscious. This is not something that people are doing intentionally, I I, I want to say. Um but, you know, I know for myself in my own um, management style, when I think of um, when I think of how I was raised and when I also think of previous um, managers I had before I started my own company, um, the constant criticism um, and constant like this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Um, without the balance of, of support and care, um, and so I knew when I started my own company, I didn't, I never wanted my, the people who worked with me to feel as I had felt. Mm. And so I worked really hard to make sure that people felt seen and they felt cared for, that they knew how valued they were. And so like, to your point, Jesse, like my, my reaction, like going the, the opposite way on the pendulum, I have no regrets of that. However, <laughs> I did not have the awareness of um, what also was missing. And so that awareness came to your point, Jesse, through coaching. And so what was missing from my end as a leader was accountability. <laughs> I was so focused on making sure that people felt cared for that I was not doing the accountability part, which is necessary, right? Both, both are necessary. Um, and so then the action, then it took time, right? To like, okay, how do I weave in accountability, still want to demonstrate the behaviors of that, you know, people feel cared for. Um, but that never would have happened had I not had the awareness, which did not just happen one night. It came through, cause you know, I have a coach. Um, it came through coaching um, and then making the changes as a result. So I appreciate you kind of laying that out for us. Yeah. And I appreciate that example, that personal example, Tanya, because I think it just gives other people permission now 
to really reflect on, you know, where, what are their areas of growth without shame? You know, just like, and I love your example also because it allows us to say that accountability can be a form of care, right? Yes, yes, yes. And it, and when it's done to one of your points earlier, where expectations are clearly laid out, communicated clearly, you check for understanding that they have the expectations, that they have the support to meet them, right? Right. And then and then the accountability. And right. if we want to, and if we bring an example kind of from family dynamics, it could look like when parents um, are high on praising their children for everything, and then the child becomes dependent on that praise for a sense of self-esteem. Right. Very right. well-intentioned. You know, we can see how, you know, that's so well-intentioned. Like what's underneath that is is good intentions. And then the impact might be different and it's not the impact that anybody intended. And so when we, when we learn about this, when we start to, you know, however we learn about it, it's just an opportunity to say, oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea that that could be an unintentional outcome or impact. So what needs to happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, taking that to therapy, taking it to coaching, taking it to having conversations with other parents, maybe because there's a lot of wisdom coming from you know, other parents as well. So there's many ways that we can meet those needs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, you're talking about other parents um, and also the support of other managers. Um, and I feel like, you know, when I think, you know, I have teenagers, um, the support I've had from other parents along the way, who's, who are at the same parenting phase, their kids are at the same similar age is yeah. invaluable. That's right. And parents who are at a phase beyond me where their kids are older right. is another like incredible, um, valuable relationship and, and, um, source of support. And so when I think about, manage managers the value of you know you're talking about awareness um and compassion for yourself as you're trying to make change and then realizing what kind of behaviors you know the ways you can get support to make those changes to have peers like managers that are your peers that are about your same level um mm -hmm. and who might be struggling in the same way as you as well as those who are not, who have the skills that you are like, oh, how do you do that? How is your like, how is this working for you? And like to like really get support there. And then I would also say to be able to have support from somebody who's more advanced in their career and who has been managing people longer. Um, because again, that I think is really, really invaluable. You know, I know we're close on time, Jesse. So I just wanted to 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 see before we kind of wrap up. Um if there's anything that you, at this point um, in your career, is there anything about leadership that you wish you had known earlier? Yeah. So for me, there's there's three things coming together. One is the importance of having a mindfulness practice. It just is because our ability to regulate ourselves and our ability to be in in helpful co-regulation with others is so important. It helps determine the weather of the environment that we're in. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Um, another is just 
being able to do a little bit more of somatic work, meaning checking in with what am I feeling in the body? Where am I feeling it? What does that feeling need? Mm. Really learning to attend with my heart to mm. what I'm experiencing. And the last one is the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, because, you know, when you're in supervision and in management, I think it's, there's this sense of, if I really want to be effective in this role, it's important for me to know a lot. It's important for me to know about the histories. It's important for me to know about institutional and systemic impacts on individuals. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm a gardener, Tanya. Mm -hmm. And wherever I've lived, I've gardened differently. When I lived in Arizona, I had a cactus garden. Mm -hmm. No, I've lived in Florida. I've lived in different areas. But I don't take my same gardening techniques and say all of the plants must obey according to the rules that me as a gardener and what I'm aware of. What I do is I continue to learn how to be a better gardener with whatever type of plants, with whatever type of environment that I'm living in. And it's it, the onus is on me. And then I start to see better results. And I start to appreciate that I'm a more effective gardener. Jesse, that is, thank you. That is a perfect ending <laughs> to a really rich conversation. Um, and I have always, in the time I've known you, I've always been so struck with um, a quiet strength is how I think of you. Uh, your warmth and knowledge and kind of the depth you go to, to help people connect to themselves and to each other. So I really appreciated um, our conversation and really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. And I could reflect that right back to you. And not only do you have that quiet strength, but you have a little bit louder strength too, which I think is needed. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you for listening to Managing Well. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about today's episode, go to thelodipogroup.com slash podcast for a worksheet on today's episode. A special thanks to my podcast team and the Ladipo Group who supports this show. Managing Well is produced and edited by Black Faves Brand Studio. I'm your host, Tanya Ladipo. If you have any questions or topics you want to discuss, email me at managingwellpodcast at thelodipogroup.com. 